when one parent practices mindfulness, you have greater family happiness, better family communication, fewer accidents in the home. You're listening to the Mindful Mama podcast. Today we're talking about how to raise resilient kids with Chris Willard. Welcome to the Mindful Mama podcast. Here it's about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. At Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm your host, Hunter Clark Fields, Mindful Mama Mentor. I help smart, thoughtful parents stay calm so they can have strong, connected relationships with their children. I've been practicing mindfulness for over 20 years. I'm the creator of the Mindful Parenting course and membership, and I'm the author of Raising Good Humans, a mindful guide to breaking the cycle of reactive parenting and raising kind, confident kids. Welcome back. I am so glad you are here today. This is such an awesome episode. In just a minute, I'm going to be sitting down with Chris Willard. And we have an awesome conversation about resilience, right? This is like the most important quality that I want for my kids during these difficult times, and maybe you too, right? And, you know, our kids really need this capacity to overcome hard times because we can't and we probably wouldn't want to protect them from every single one of life's difficulties anyway. So today I talk to... Dr. Christopher Willard, a psychologist who has been practicing meditation for 20 years. He has led hundreds of workshops around the world with invitations to appear in two dozen countries. He's presented at TEDx conferences and his thoughts have appeared in the New York Times, Washington Post, and elsewhere. He's the author of a Child's, Child's Mind, Growing Up Mindful, Raising Resilience, and 10 other books for parents, professionals, and children available in more than a dozen languages. And he teaches at the Harvard Medical School. So he's an awesome, well-informed expert with so much to offer. And I want you to listen for some important takeaways, how the younger that your child is, the more contagious your emotions are. So of course, that work with you, you cannot give what you do not have really matters, right? And that the best practice for a child in a meltdown is your mindfulness practice as a parent. And that resilient kids have both a stable, loving adult and responsibilities. So there's a lot to take in here. I'm dying for you to jump into this episode. But before we dive in, I want to let you know it's a you know it's early. It's maybe August if you're listening to this in real time. But the Mindful Parenting free live training is coming around again and this is a powerful training. People love this so much. We're going to be doing it in September uh, 9th through 14th. But this is what we're going to be learning. We're going to talk about why your kids don't listen to you. We're going to talk about how to stop yelling, parenting during the pandemic, and then these three myths that keep you from being the parent you want to be. So if you want to join all that, I'll be teaching live and taking questions. We'll be doing giveaways. It's a whole fun thing. Um, if you want to be a part of it, just go to mindfulparentingcourse.com slash free training. That's mindfulparentingcourse.com slash free training. And of course, you can find it at mindfulmamamentor.com too. 
Um, but it's so cool and I can't wait for you to be a part of it. It's so fun to join thousands of people and from around the world doing this work. It's so exciting. All right, enough about that. I can't wait for you to dive in. Join me at the table as I talk to Chris Willard. Chris, thanks so much for coming on the Mindful Mama podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This is great. Yeah, thank you. I'm I'm looking forward to talking to you. And I love talking to people who are <clears throat> teaching, helping teach mindfulness to kids. And, and I think that's such a powerful thing. But I love, I think your story has so much power in it. In that, you know, I think it's really valuable to see that the people you know we see as experts are have really struggled you know in a lot of ways like for for me personally i come to mindfulness because i really needed it but you really <laughs> needed it too so i was wondering <laughs> if um if maybe you could talk to us about that that story about how you came to mindfulness yeah absolutely and um and, and i do think you know I, I think some of us we get into mindfulness and we start suddenly noticing like Oh, no one comes through this without some, no one's like, my life is going great. I'm going to add in mindfulness. It's like, usually <laughs> things are a challenge and then we're looking for some answers and then we find what we find, whether it's spirituality or whether it's arts or whether it's mindfulness or whether it's a combination of all of those things. And, and that's certainly my story. And then, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to share that. So, I mean, I, and, and I do think it's such an interesting conversation when I talk to other kind of mindfulness teachers, and again, you know, kind of broadly speaking, like, what is your origin story? Um, and I, you know, I guess for me, there's sort of two parts of it. One is just being a kid and growing up in a family that was like pretty, I don't know, like not that, you know, I don't know, normal is a pretty, you know, questionable word in some ways, but <laughs> like, you know, just a, a pretty standard kind of family growing up in the suburbs in a lot of ways. And um you know, but but I had these experiences when I was a kid that I, I think back on, I never heard that word mindfulness, but I think about like being at day camp when I was like seven years old and the counselor is saying, you know, we're going to walk in the forest as, as silently as we can. Can you not make a sound while we walk? And then we're going to sit down and listen to all the sounds in the forest. Can you hear the trees whispering to each other? Mm. Right. And like, you know, 20 years later, looking back and being like, it takes so much focus to walk without making a sound. That's a lot like this mindful walking thing mm -hmm. I'm doing right now. Or sitting and listening to all the sounds in the silence remains probably my favorite anchor of attention when I'm <laughs> in all the time that I have these days, right, to go and do a, you know, 10 minute, 20 minute sit. That's usually either the full practice rather than my breath, or that's at least the kind of beginning of my practice is just taking some time to listen to sounds. Mm -hmm. Or like looking at clouds in the sky with my dad or, you know, who knows what. So I had these experiences that were sort of mindfulness-ish, if not actually mindfulness. And then I, you know, grew up and went to kind of like a high pressure cooker high school and off to college and, um, and totally had like a complete meltdown, um, you know, in, in some circle, and I ended up taking a couple of years off, you know, in, in some circles, you might call that finding yourself and other circles, you might call that getting your shit together, right? Kind of like one or the other. And, and in that time, my parents were very caring. They'd actually just gotten interested in mindfulness, probably in retrospect, because they were stressed out by me mm -hmm. um, and how hard a time I was having with drugs and alcohol, depression, anxiety, all these other things. I was, um, using lots and lots of drugs, was using IV heroin, things like that. And, um, 
you know, a couple of years of, of taking time off from school. And they, they actually basically like dragged me on this retreat with Thich Nhat Hanh. And basically my first few days of sobriety were on a retreat with Thich Nhat Hanh in wow. Vermont with all these other people and being kind of sick and like trying to do this mindful walking and mindful sitting. And yet at the same time, you know, starting to feel suddenly like the, some kind of spark in me had been reignited of a, of a desire to live, of a desire to connect with other people. Of, I mean, his emphasis is so much on interbeing, right? But seeing the ways that my behavior was impacting other people as well as impacting myself, as well as seeing that like life could actually be really wonderful and worth living when we slow down and we take a half an hour to eat that raisin or we walk <laughs> slowly or we like gaze up at the mountains and, um, those retreats, you know, that aren't really happening anymore, but, you know, they, they had wonderful affinity groups of area, you know, sort of geographic zip code or areas of interest. And, and one of the ones that they also had of areas of interest was, was addiction and recovery. And so I met a lot of people um, in that. And that really started my journey in mindfulness, which then was coinciding with my journey of um, recovery from addiction. I've now been sober for 19 years. Um, you know, and also my my journey in terms of like getting back in touch with my creativity, and and then like so many young people when they're converted to something, right? Just wanting to share this, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, oh my gosh, everyone needs to learn mindfulness. I need to teach everyone, you know, especially young people need to learn mindfulness. They don't have to suffer as much as me, and so that kind of got things really kicked off for me, which then was not. And also, I want to just say, like, there's a lot in between that day and the day today, and becoming a parent, right? And and a lot of, you know challenges in between. It's not like, you know, I went on that retreat and then suddenly my life was amazing. It's I went on that retreat and that was day one of things moving forward in my life um, and moving toward life in a really different way. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's so cool. It's cool that you were able to go with your parents. Cool that they had like the, they had the, you know, they had that resource somehow they had been exposed to that. I've actually taken my daughter my, I took my six-year-old on the last retreat that Tay did in oh, the United wow. States in wow. 2013. Wow. And, wow. Um, yeah. and so, so we were, we were there and, and we've done family retreats um, in that tradition as well, which I think the listener, you've probably heard me talk about. But um, so I can really relate to, I, for myself personally, I have a great image of, you know, what the walking looked like, you know, there were probably lots of people and, and that's kind of like a wonderful peer pressure to have in that everybody, you know, you're with hundreds or even thousands of other people who are like quietly walking and practicing mindfulness. And actually like you, you talk about, I mean, I wanted to talk to you about this later about how your, how our practice can influence other people, but obviously that practice really you know that was like this incredible positive peer pressure for you i mean that i feel like you must feel very fortunate that this sort of because it could have gone <laughs> so many bad oh, ways gosh. so many bad ways and I, and I feel so incredibly lucky that you know my parents had you know that they'd already been starting this practice that they'd had access you know to sort of you know whether it's financial access or cultural access and permission, right? All those things to be able to know about someone like Thich Nhat Hanh or to, to learn about something like mindfulness and then to have, you know, the frame of mind to, and, and, the, and the courage to see whether that would go okay for me. I don't know if I would recommend people drag their, you know, 
kid basically on a take that on retreat with like a, you know, 30 seconds of sobriety. But, but it's somehow in my situation, <laughs> I was in the right place at the right time. Also, you know, a lot of, a lot of stars had to align or whatever you believe in, right, for that to happen. And I feel so lucky that it did. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing to see <clears throat> the amount of suffering that also I think that one can have having grown up in like a relatively, you know, your parents, when they took you on that retreat, were still together. Like, you know, they were a relatively yeah. stable, like kind of quote unquote normal household in the suburbs. You know, if you're in the suburbs, you had some, some means, right. And, and um, to see like the amount of suffering you're, you were under as far as anxiety and depression, all those things when we get to our twenties and there's, even more now these days, right? Yeah, I mean, isn't right. that what all the studies say about today's kids? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we, we know about our kids today <clears throat> and I'm sure you've had people on the podcast too to discuss, but like, you know, such a, you know, collapse in, in, in mental health, you know, one in three teenagers having anxiety or, you know, mostly anxiety, but some other diagnosable um, mental health issue. I work a lot, um, I think, especially because it was that, that time in my life, but with college students, that's actually a, a project I'm just sort of undertaking is mental health in college kids. Um, the number of college kids like dropping out, not graduating in four years, you know, all, all these things. But then also, not just that, but like going earlier into childhood, you know, even at like my son's nursery school, like, you know, there were kids with like pretty challenging, you know, anxiety um, issues. And um, you know, and then just the consulting I do in, in different schools, um, elementary schools, high schools, colleges, preschools, but just hearing. And of course, I'm hearing, you know, that's my job. I'm, I'm a psychologist, so I hear the worst, most challenging stories. But even in the time that I've been in the profession, I've seen it change and uptick in the last decade or so. And then, of course, you had a pandemic on top of that. And um, it's a recipe for even more, <laughs> even more challenges. So, Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's it's crazy right now for kids and and so you're and for everyone i mean honestly but so you you uh you sort of fast forward to to the end of your story which i think is so helpful to hear that <laughs> then chris went on to you were you're at harvard medical school right and you have mm-hmm. all this. so he, yeah. he went on, mindfulness saved your life Woo-hoo! it did it totally 100 <laughs> percent. the last time i saw technet hot in person i at harvard medical school actually Mm. um at a conference i mean i just i just sat there you know if you've ever heard the avalokiteshvara you know Mm. sort of chanting that they do on the retreats or you can find them on youtube but like i was just like bawling my eyes out because it it was like it's probably around 2013 actually um uh and maybe a little bit earlier than that but it was like you know just all that you know years kind of in between and and really feeling like that that his presence his work his community that the space that he created um and and held you know and continues right to hold for the world is is what allowed me to to live um and uh saved my life for real like absolutely absolutely Stay tuned for more Mindful Mama podcasts right after this break. We are supported by Biosans. I have been using their squalane and lactic acid resurfacing night serum for the last month. And I have to say my skin has never looked better and it feels so lovely to put on every single night. It's Biosans' best-selling serum and a top-selling serum at Sephora. You wake up to dramatically smoother, softer, luminous skin overnight. 
It gently exfoliates and resurfaces for a smoother, softer texture, helping to eliminate daily stressors for your skin. With Biosense, their mission is to make beauty really clean. Their products are formulated without parabens, without synthetic fragrances, and over 2,000 ingredients that are potentially toxic or questionable, ensuring only the highest standards for skincare that is clean, safe, sustainable, and effective. All Biosense's products are proudly vegan, cruelty-free, and EWG verified. They use squalane, this mega moisturizing molecule. It's weightless, non-comedogenic oil that instantly hydrates while locking in essential moisture. And they save two million sharks every year because they make the squalane using ethically and sustainably sourced sugarcane. For years, some companies have used shark's liver. Many have since switched to olives, but crop variability and natural occurring impurities can make the end result unpredictable, both in terms of quality and availability. And Biosance uses this shelf-stable, 100% vegan squalane, and it's consistent and reliable, and it's nature's best moisturizer for the planet. I invite you to make this an essential part of your nighttime routine, gentle enough to use every night and perfectly balanced with 10% vegan lactic acid. It's powerful enough to produce dramatic results, but gentle enough for daily use. And you can feel so good about the sourcing. Go ahead to biosance.com and use the coupon code HUNTER to get 20% off your next purchase. That's biosance.com, B-I-O-S-S-A-N-C-E. Use the coupon code HUNTER to get 20% off now. Yeah, yeah, I've been in those, one of my first experiences actually with we just Chris is in Boston. I used to live in Boston, and uh, one of my first experiences seeing um, Thich Nhat Hanh live was going to Boston, being in the Boston Convention Center at, mm-hmm. at some one point, and the Boston Convention Center, and like they had all the rooms opened up, so it was like this enormous space, and there were like ten thousand people there or something. You know, like it was just a huge number of people in a single room because it's this convention center. Everybody's sitting in chairs and perfectly silent and i was like mm. this is crazy like wow i've never been in a, this with this many people perfectly quiet right. it was it was i i have goosebumps like remembering yeah. that it was amazing yeah yeah uh, um so you i think you like me like saw that you know if we can you know we can help kids and it's wonderful to like have school interventions and things like that but we also need to help parents in order to help kids right because like if parents are really stressed out then um then kids are really absorbing that right like it's nice to say to your child like here honey go do this guided mindfulness meditation (laughs) but if you're like really stressed and have a lot of anxiety like that's really the you know do this thing while i get all stressed right not gonna really work so well well, check my emails and like right yeah yeah so talk to us a little bit about like kind of how how we can, I mean, I I guess I'd like to talk about like kids resilience. Mm -hmm. How can we, you know, your book is, one of your books is called Raising Resilience. So how can Mm -hmm. we help kids be more resilient? And then, but I think that I'd like to open up the conversation starting about, starting with how, what our own life, what our own priorities and our own practices have to do with that. Because, you know, we talk about how, 
you know, our own practice can, and there's research, right, that shows that our own practice right. lead to more positive emotions in the people around us. So can you tell us a little more about that? Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I get asked all the time, like, what's the best practice when my kid is having a meltdown? What's the best practice for my kid's panic attack? And the answer that I, it took me a while to kind of figure this out. And the answer I've I come back with, and, and I don't mean to sound flip, but the best practice, the best mindfulness practice for a kid in a meltdown or a kid in a panic attack is your practice as a parent, right? It's like, what can you, can you draw on that time that you spent on your cushion or that you, you know, have spent walking a bit more mindfully or eating a bit more mindfully in informal ways? Like that's going to be the thing that helps your kid. That's going to be what saves your kid. Not being like, here, read this book or, you know, here, go listen to this or go do some breaths or something like that. It's going to be, can we stay well-regulated? Can we stay connected while our kid is really suffering, right? Whether it's big addiction of years or whether it's micro suffering of a panic attack about what am I going to, you know, where to school tomorrow? I mean, all of those things require us to be well-regulated and we can use mindfulness and for us to stay connected and compassionate while our child is having that really difficult time. And this is because all of our emotions are contagious. And the younger our child is, the more contagious they are. So like, yes, anxiety is somewhat genetic and so is depression and all that. But also like, you know, as, as you said, right, we're really setting the tone you know, what kids are not doing until they're older is self-regulating. What they're doing is co-regulating with us. So like they, they don't have, their brains are not developed. So we're doing that regulation for them. And then they learn how to internalize this, right? Mm-hmm. And it becomes a skill that they can use. So it keeps, it kind of keeps over and over again, coming back to us. But like, yeah, I remember when we went to the pediatrician right after my son was born and I immediately kind of anxiously was like, what if, what if he has anxiety? And the pediatrician said like, you know, I've seen a lot of a lot of anxious kids without anxious parents, but I've never seen anxious parents without an anxious kid. And I was sort of like, oh shit, got to work on part of my language, but like, got to work on my own, you know, like reminder of like going back to my own practice, back to my own, you know, self care, whatever that looks like. You know, again, whether that's mindfulness, whether that's exercise, whether that's art, you know, whatever it is for each of us. Um, but for me, it, it's mostly around mindfulness. Um, and then we have this amazing thing where it is contagious, that when one parent practices, the partner is happier, the co-parent is happier, and is happier with the relationship. The kids are happier, family communication is better, there's fewer accidents in the home, right? All wow. this really cool stuff starts to kind of trickle out from person to person. Is that... Uh, is that research? Like when one parent practices those, can you repeat that? Cause that's just yeah, amazing. Absolutely. It's one of my favorite <laughs> things. And, I, and I've been, I, you know, trying to think like, can I write a whole book on this or maybe just, you know, some blogs or something, but, but it really is. So when one parent practices mindfulness, you have greater family happiness, better family communication, fewer accidents in the home. Um, one other thing I can't remember when people in a partnership practice, like a couple, right? Like if I'm practicing, then actually my wife, you know, the research would predict that my wife would be happier with our relationship (laughs) and our communication would be better. Um, And there'd be fewer negative interactions. Mm -hmm. When roommates practice, like if like college kids, it's like the the week one, one of the college kids is practicing mindfulness, the other roommate is happier, even if they don't know that, that the roommate is secretly practicing 20 minutes of mindfulness every day on their you know, listening to some download or something. So it really is, yeah, I mean, this stuff is so cool. 
compassion is also contagious. Generosity is contagious person to person to person. Um, they've looked at this and, and, and like real researchers, this is not, you know, like University of Quackadoo. This is like, you know, uh, you know, people at Emory, people at Harvard Medical School, people at Oxford, like this is really cool stuff. Um, the way it, it starts to trickle out and affect other people. So I, I think about this a lot right now when, you know, well, if our mindfulness affects the people around us, you know, we're recording this in the middle of the pandemic. I don't know when everyone's listening, but we're spending a lot of time with three or four people right now. <laughs> yes. So our behavior is really having a big impact on them. Right? Yes. Yes. And maybe we say go do some hot chocolate breaths, but we start with ourselves. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's, that's amazing. It's really proving interbeing. You know, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, totally. The Zen Buddhist master that we talked about in the beginning, talking about this, he teaches this idea of interbeing and that we inter are. And it's so, it's such an important counter thought to all the like independence thinking that we're kind of raised with in the, mm-hmm. yet in the United States, you know, where I'm just gonna do my thing and it doesn't, you know, I'm just, it doesn't affect anybody, but that's not true. And you, this research is really proving that it's not true. And, and we, right. we know it's not true in, in all sorts of other levels too, but I mean, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's, it's really exciting for me to hear because it's something I've been teaching a lot and like, <laughs> but what if my partner doesn't practice? Well, now I can say for sure you, you can have a positive effect, even if your partner doesn't practice. Right, right. And, and compassion, actually, like I did this little kind of like goofy talk a few years ago about how compassion is not just contagious, but it's like, there's this sort of joke about karma. Like if you do good, it'll come back around. If you do bad, it'll come back around. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like, well, that's not really how karma works. But in fact, actually, if you do good, like you actually can see positive behavior, like something like generosity or kindness come back around to you. Like you can actually like look at this statistically. It's kind of wow. crazy. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, wow, wow, that's amazing. And you you start off your book, raising resilience, with a chapter about generosity, and you said generosity mm-hmm. is also contagious. Mm-hmm. And um, and I I wanted to talk to you about generosity, and I love you know how the you know shows how. Gen- research shows how generosity like makes us feel better and all those incredible ways. And I think that's amazing. And I want to teach generosity, but I also want to teach responsibility to my kids. (laughs) I get really frustrated uh, sometimes at that, like kind of balance that middle path between generosity and responsibility, right? Like, so for instance, my 10 year old, like we're trying to right now teach her to remember lots of little things that she is forgetting all around the house making a pain in the butt for us like the cap on the toothpaste the you know the dishes here left here and all these different things left all over the place and so what i'm saying is honey come back i know i'm interrupting something but you got to come back and take care of this because this is the natural consequence of this and this is mm-hmm. going to help you remember to do this and i'm sorry i know it's a pain in the butt but so I'm trying to teach her responsibility in that, but am I not being generous by just like helping her out a bit and modeling that? So help me <laughs> go through this conundrum that I have personally. <laughs> I think this is so hard and it comes, and it's, in some ways it comes back again to mindfulness, which teaches us, right, two things arise out of mindfulness, wisdom and compassion. And wisdom we can also think of as like discernment and, and, and knowing how to read situations and make good decisions and and act accordingly to what's really going on. And so I think mindfulness really helps us. But you know, one of the things I, I think I present, maybe it's even later in that book, but is sort of like 
these are hard questions. Like as a parent, what's generosity and what's spoiling, mm-hmm. right? Or what's general, you know, or what's, you know, maybe in the case of my parents, when I was 20 years old, what's generosity and what's enabling, right? Mm. And then there, on, the, on the flip side of that, there's also this sort of razor's edge between like what's generosity and what's obligation, right? Like, well, of course I'm going to mm. put dinner on the table for my kids. Like, is that an act of generosity or is that just like what I should do as a parent? And I think these are just, you know, to me in many ways, these are moving targets. These are always changing, right? And what's like the bigger generosity? Like is, is, the, is the bigger generosity sweeping up for my kid? Is the bigger generosity yelling at my kid to, to clean up? Or is it cleaning up with them and teaching them how to clean up? Because then there's sort of like the, you know, teach the man to fish kind of thing. And like, you know, then the bigger gift is in fact, independence, right? Or maybe interdependence, as we'd mm. say, because it came out of this relationship that we had with them. And I think the thing as parents to remember is like, we're never going to get it right. We're certainly not going to get it right all the time, right? We're just always aiming to get it a little bit more right than we did yesterday, <laughs> because the kid's going to be different today, and the mess is going to look different today, and, the, and we're going to be in a different mood, or we're going to have to get out the door faster that day, or not as fast that day. And so being in many ways, also generous with ourselves with like, okay, the generous thing to do today is to not get into the power struggle. (laughs) That's the generous thing to do to myself, right? Or maybe the generous thing to do is to, you know, is is to like, you know, take the time to really talk out. This is why you've got to pick up your toys or your Legos or your art supplies or dishes or or whatever it might be. Um, And uh, yeah, but, and and I hope that doesn't sound like a dodge, but I do think it's more like, it's not like it's it's dependent on every person, but it is like mm-hmm. it's about our wisdom. It's about mm-hmm. how how much we're in touch with the present moment, which mindfulness will cultivate. That's what then allows us to respond from what's happening in the present moment, not what happened yesterday when mm-hmm. we were so pissed and we yelled at the kid, or you know, or we're so we were so pissed and we didn't yell at the kid, but now we're resentful today. So we do yell at the kid, right? We're responding from the present, not from the conditioning the child has done, our own childhood conditioning. I've, someone asked me recently how I think of mindful parenting, and I think of it as like parenting from the present. But what does that really mean? It's not reacting. It's not parenting out of reaction to our own childhood, and it's not replicating the way our parents parented us. But it's weighing both of those, and then kind of like acting with what's happening in the moment. And the more in touch we are with the moment, and attuned we are to our child, right, the more we'll be able to say, "Today's the day I'm gonna just pick up their damn dishes." <laughs> <laughs> today I'm going to say, let's pick up the dishes together and here's why, or I'm going to pick up the dishes and then have a conversation later, right? I think that's mm-hmm. where mindfulness can help us. And again, it's not a magic bullet. You're not going to get it right every time, but you'll also learn how to forgive yourself when you don't get it right. And that I think is such an important part of parenting. Yeah. And that, that compassion is, is contagious, you know, and I, mm-hmm. we, t- you know, I teach a lot that like, we have to practice that for ourselves. Like we have to like, turn around the inner voice to be one of from one from a harsh voice to a, a, a com, self-compassionate voice because right. eventually that voice is coming out you're not gonna right. hide it forever right. you right. know it's like <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah and so that's that's really contagious well you're 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 helping me think about the the uh, generosity responsibility uh conundrum that i'm in and 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 you write in your book how there's like the three types of generosity material comfort and wisdom and you know even if i'm not maybe making being like sort of materially 
generous in those moments, maybe I can be like, offer some, some wisdom, generosity instead, you know, and, and, but just, I love that reminder to just, you know, don't make it a blanket rule, (laughs) you know, just be, be present with what's happening in, in that moment. Um, talking about sort of like the ultimate, uh, present person. Um, I love how in Raising Resilience, you talk about how even the Buddha had helicopter parents. <laughs> and I had never thought of, I've known the story of the Buddha for a long time, and I never had real, never, it's true, did have helicopter parents. So I would love it if you could sort of uh, summer, tell that story a little bit about about the Buddha and his helicopter parents and, and sort of the what happened with, with that. Absolutely. I mean, it's fun. I, you know, I did that book a couple of years ago and I, I, I don't revisit it often, but I'm, it's always such a treat when I do because I actually really enjoyed writing it. Um, and it's about Buddhist principles in the modern world. And so it's trying to draw on um, the, the 10 paramis and, ter- and then looking at them like, what does this look like in the modern world? How do we apply this to parenting? And it's sort of like the Buddha was able to pass the marshmallow test and, and then talking also about the Buddha had helicopter parents. And and, and he did, you know, like he was, he lived in a gated community for lack of a better word, right? He lived within the castle walls. He never went out, right? He only had, you know, pleasure and joy and, you know, creature comforts and all the best food and, you know, never saw any suffering in the real world because he never left his little bubble, right? Which is, you know, the experience of, you know, me for much of my childhood and, you know, probably some other listeners and some other parents. Right. And then one day, basically his, his servant who, you know, we could translate in the modern world as, you know, his nanny, you know, like went back to his neighborhood or her neighborhood and suddenly he saw suffering just as like a really privileged kid might, you know, run an errand with their nanny and suddenly be like, wait a minute, this neighborhood looks different. And, you know, that, that kind of thing. And, um, and then what happened when he saw that suffering is he, he wanted to know where it came from and what people could do about it. He saw sickness, old age and death. Um, and, and it is one of those things about, you know, it's not like we need to throw our kids into suffering, but they do need to, you know, know that the world is, is a challenging place. It's a place that does have suffering in it. We need to expose them to that in developmentally, emotionally appropriate ways, but that, you know, what, what happened for him when he saw that, you know, is that he then, you know, went on this mission to figure out how to alleviate that suffering in the world. And in some ways, you know, that's like, I kind of, you know, reflect that as sort of like, you know, kid goes off to college and suddenly, you know, starts to get politically active or, you know, goes on a a trip abroad or something, a privileged kid and suddenly, you know, becomes interested in alleviating poverty or medicine or something like that. And it's not that different. We just, you know, for many of us, it just sounds so different that the Buddha did all this or, you know, that he had these, you know, kings and queens as, as parents when in fact, you know, it's really the same story of just a, a privileged kid with helicopter parents in the gated community. And um, it's only once our kids start to get exposed to the world and the challenges of the world that they can start to grow. But then again, the middle path is, you know, we're not going to throw our kids into the, the horrors of the world when they're four years old. We're going to slowly, through storytelling, through sharing from our own experience, through talking about history, right, start to share with them, you know, what the world is like in ways that they can process and make meaning out of and have it transform not into cynicism and anger and hopelessness, 
but share these things with them so that it turns into a drive for compassion and a desire and a drive to alleviate that suffering, right? That's the real, that's what we're really trying to do. Because we all know when we're sick, when we're suffering, it can turn into anger and bitterness, or it can turn into how can I alleviate this suffering mm -hmm. and other people, right? And that's certainly what I hope for with my kid, right? Raising, raising good kids, right? Raising good adults, right? Like you talk about, right? So it's that same, same thing. Stay tuned for more Mindful Mama podcasts right after this break. We are supported by KiwiCo. As parents, we may feel like our kids' summer vacation started way too early if we've been at home together, and now actual summer vacation is here. Well, we learning at home really doesn't have to stop for the summer. In fact, here's a really fun way to learn at home. Believe it or not, a lot of kids are missing school right now, and they want to have that learning. And if we listen close, we know that kids could be learning at home. Well, I love this sponsor, KiwiCo. My daughter did a walking robot. She has the Tinker Crate, and she did the walking robot. I loved how she did it all herself. She made this actual robot that like walked around and it was so cute. She loved the building part. For her, the building part was the most fun. With KiwiCo, they have all kinds of different crates for all kinds of different ages and stages and interests. And your child can get these super cool hands-on science and art projects delivered at your door every single month. And what kid doesn't love to get mail? You'll be surprised at how high quality the materials are. These are real engineering science and art projects for children. You know, as a parent, it's hard to find creative and new things to keep your children busy and challenged, especially during this crazy long days of COVID summer, right? And KiwiCo does the legwork for you so you can spend quality time tackling projects together at home. KiwiCo is redefining play with hands-on projects that build confidence, creativity, and critical thinking skills. There's something for every kid or kid at heart at KiwiCo. You can get your first month free on select crates at kiwico.com hunter. That's K-I-W-I-C-O dot com slash hunter. Yeah, it's interesting that you, you know, in that chapter you point out that many of us who may be in this sort of time of, you know, maybe we're sort of coming out of that time of helicopter parenting, but we were children of parents now who underparented. Together. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we are to all stuck together. But you know, like we were children of parents who underparented, you know, who are, you know, my my dad jokes about it. He's like, Yeah, I parented you through benign neglect and you know you're fine, kind of thing. Um, and uh, I hadn't, I hadn't really thought about that. Like that, that sort of that underparenting has has maybe led to this this overcorrection. And mm -hmm. um, would you say that? So thinking back to your own childhood, what what kind of parenting were you raised with? Yeah, you know, I think my parents were unfortunately cutting edge in some ways. I think you know, so my mom was a psychologist also. And she studied child development. Actually, she was going to be a teacher. I think she wanted to be a principal. Um, went to graduate school for that to get her doctorate and then started getting more and more interested in mental health and ended up kind of going on a clinical track in, in, in psychology. Um, so she was kind of exposed to all these early ideas about, this is the late 70s, early 80s, about 
you know, kind of self-esteem and, you know, all those kinds of things um, that we are now correcting also, right, with like, you know, sort of the growth mindset movement and, you know, that, that kind of thing. Um, and so I actually was, I mean, I actually kind of think I was like, in many ways, more sheltered than a lot of my friends, more kind of like, I don't like to say coddled, but like about myself, but I do think I kind of was in some ways in the way that there's maybe these stereotypes about millennials now that like this sort of everybody gets a trophy and everybody's great. And now these kids all have no, you know, again, like I don't subscribe to that whole cloth by any means, but like, but that was a little bit of who I was. Like I had no clue how to manage the real world. And as soon as things got hard and my parents weren't around, I completely fell apart. That's what, that's what happened for me in college. It was like, mm. wait a minute, my parents aren't helping with it. Like, oh my gosh, I don't even know how to like organize my own calendar or whatever. And like every, the wheels just totally came off once I had a little taste of freedom. And so then, you know, and they did fall off and then I was in really rough shape. And then, you know, I started to realize like, I want to feel more inde independent and interdependent rather than dependent. And I think actually to go back to Thich Nhat Hanh, right, what's the difference between interdependence and dependence, right? I was dependent. I learned how to become interdependent. Mm -hmm. right? That that's sort of what the journey of my early 20s was um, and feeling like I could do things for myself and then feel actually good about myself because I was doing things that made me feel good or not feel good. Um, that's really where self-esteem comes from is, as I heard someone say once, doing esteemable things, like, you know, by paying my own bills, by, you know, doing, I spend a lot of time doing jobs like construction where it's like, if you get it wrong, you get it wrong. There's not, you don't get a trophy. It's like, you broke that thing. Like, what's the matter with you? Now you have to pay for it. Like that kind of thing actually was really important. Um, for some of my my personal development or, or learning how to do other things on my own and not in a dependent way, so so what would I say about my parenting? But but they were you know that's sort of the the less you know generous side maybe toward my parents, but they were also incredibly loving, um, and and it's hard to fault people for being like too loving and a little too compassionate or too giving you too much of a cushion, right? <laughs> um, but they were incredibly loving. You know, they, they, I think it's in the book actually, um, you know, they went to a, a therapist when I was having a hard time who said, and stuck with me, but the number one rule of parenting is never give up. And man, am I glad they never gave up. Um, and it's one that I think of often myself. It's one that I, you know, then, you know, share in, in workshops and share when I um, talk to parents as a therapist. Um, and they never gave up on me. And that, that I think, you know, is, is so important. And they, they loved me and they supported me, you know, even when I was having such an incredibly difficult time. And I think they, you know, figured out how to set, how to set like better limits. And I learned how to accept better limits. And I think that then made our relationship actually so much more, more meaningful and closer. Like then after that, it became close in a much more sort of adult to adult way through my twenties and thirties and now, um, into my forties. Um, so that's been, been really important. And that, that also came out of doing a lot of, you know, wonderful family things together, you know, family trips, you know, whether it was, you know, like a kind of fancier trip or whether it was something like just, you know, the, the after my senior year of high school, we did like a week long, um, backcountry backpacking trip in the, in the Tetons in Wyoming, um, as a family, which was really cool in retrospect. It's like, that was awesome that they did that. Um, 
with us and and a lot of things like that that I think really brought us brought us closer in in good ways um not just sort of that like comfortable close but that close in ways that are also challenging and I don't know mm-hmm. if I'm articulating myself as well as I want to but those things are so special and they instilled really good values in me I think we all think we have good values right but <laughs> but but I do feel like you know I really learned how to be generous how to be kind how to be caring um I don't I you know I feel lucky I don't carry a lot of resentment <laughs> um, toward them at all um and uh and I feel really grateful for that and they, they've been supportive to me over the you know over my adulthood too and and have made wonderful grandparents for my my own two children so, so beautiful. I feel so lucky I love, I love hearing, you know, this sort of like honest recollection of this was a problem and this incredible strengths that came through as well, you know, like these incredible loving strengths, but it sounds like you could really relate to a lot of the generation of college kids who are really, do really struggle with getting overwhelmed and because Mm -hmm. that, you know, the, the things have been sort of snow plowed out of the way for them to use another kind of metaphor for that. But so let's, let's talk a little bit then about, you know, what, how do we help kids prepare for the world? How do we, how do we help them with that, you know, that resilience? How do we help them get that resilience? I mean, I mean, maybe especially now in this crazy yeah. pandemic time. Yeah. I think giving kids something, you know, I, during the pandemic, I, you know, suddenly got asked to do all these talks on resilience and it was kind of going back over <laughs> my notes, but I think, you know, I, I think giving kids, independence and interdependence and you know one of the things i've been saying is you know when if you if you look at the research on kids that have been through what we might call aces adverse childhood events which are basically small and large traumas um you know whether it's facing discrimination whether it's mental illness in the family addiction violence you know violence in your neighborhood right all these kinds of things that add up and you know and often you know are correlated with problems down the road um you look at some of these kids who have all these high ACE scores and they are fine and you ask questions of them and you find out two things. One is that all those kids who, who turned out okay, who turned out resilient had one adult in their life who was stable and supportive and loving mm-hmm. um, and consistent and compassionate. And maybe that's a parent or maybe that's a teacher or maybe that's somebody else. Um, and the other thing is that they often said that they, like when you ask them what were meaningful recollections from childhood, they'll say that they were given responsibility. They were asked to be a part of something bigger than themselves. And whether that's a spiritual thing or whether that's a, you know, movement of some kind or whether that's, you know, just doing service work of some kind. And and I don't want the takeaway to be like, Dr. Willard said, like, do your dishes if you want to be resilient. It's like, yeah, great. (laughs) Do the dishes. That'd be great. But, but really like I think about during this time, like, how can I get my kids who are pretty young, but like, you know, can they be making signs, you know, for, for marches? Can we be making the neighborhood more fun by writing in chalk around the neighborhood? Can we be dropping off food at neighbors' houses, right? Can older kids be tutoring younger kids online who are, they, we know are falling behind, right, in online school situations? Um, can, you know, can, can kids be, you know, uh, so many older people can't get visitors at the retirement community. Can kids be making artwork and sending it over there or, you know, 
putting on concerts in their home and getting them played at the in the hospitals, right? These kinds of things are ways that we can be, to me anyway, like we can all become part of something bigger. We can all, I think we all agree, everyone in North America, or at least in the US who's listening, right? That like our, our society is getting not even more polarized, just more kind of like atomized almost um, in, in all these sort of smaller, you know, groups that are afraid of each other. Um, this can actually really rebuild connections. If the older kids tutoring the younger kid, it's like, then those two families feel more trust and connection. If the kids are, you know, you know, if the, if the people at the retirement community are reading to the five-year-olds and the, the five-year-olds are sending artwork back to hang up on the walls, that's strengthening those community bonds, right? So we're becoming more resilient as individuals when we do things like service work. And we're also making more resilient communities and a more resilient society for ourselves if we do this kind of thing. And we're giving our kids something to do besides just watch more screens, which I think is also all of us parents are desperate to figure out. So. OMG. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love this though, because it kind of points back to like what we we're saying in the beginning, you know, it's like we parents are kind of selfishly in some ways thinking like, oh, I want for my kid, I want my kid to be resilient. You know, I want them to be resilient and that what you're pointing to as part of the answer is like this collective answer. Like let, let's teach our kids to care for more than themselves. Let's teach our kids to care for others and to act on that and to, to have it be more than entertainment, you know? Um, And it's a little hard though, because parents are so stressed out. We're working so much. Like it takes sort of creativity and time and challenge to like organize (laughs) uh, any of those things you talked about, you know, too. So it's, um, I, in some ways, it's a big ask as well. Yeah, it's a yeah, little hard. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it, it is, and I, and I think you know I also just want to you know really put that out there. This is none of this is easy, and you know, and and everyone's in such a different place in terms of what their what kind of literal time or finances or bandwidth, even in terms of their stress or you know abilities they might have to to kind of help facilitate these things to happen. Um, you know, that I'm not just like, yeah, everyone go do a giant art project and bring it down to the retirement. It's like, I know it's a lot more than that. But it's also as the conversation, you know, turns to like, what can schools look like? It's like, learning is, you know, learning math and reading is going to be hard, but maybe there are some other skills that we can be thinking about that educators can be facilitating in our kids and connections and um, you know, social emotional learning that's not like a curriculum, but is like, yeah, we're just connecting with other people. And that's actually going to be one of the best things we can all do for our mental health. Um, and, and put away the grade books for a little bit and, and the homework assignments and, and worksheets, um, that that might also be another way of kind of re-envisioning this time, depending, you know, again, on what's what, what ends up happening. But that's a way of re-envisioning, you know, the other adults in a, in a child's life um, to help facilitate those things, right? Because, of course, so many parents, not to mention so many teachers, right, but are so stretched, so, so, so thin right now. Yeah, it was interesting that my kid's school put out a survey and I had to answer, like, what is the highest priority for my child? Like, is it, like, get their grades? Is their mental, mm-hmm. emotional well-being? Is it their physical safety? And I had mm-hmm. to choose. It was like, well, this is, <laughs> this is interesting, you know? Like, yeah. um, I wonder what the other answers are like. <laughs> right, right. That's the <laughs> results. 
Um, yeah, yeah. Well, Chris, this is awesome. I, I really enjoy talking to you. I could probably talk to you a lot more, but you have other, so many other resources. You know, your Raising Resilience book is lovely, but you also have books for kids. Do you want to tell the listener a little bit about, you know, you have the book Alpha Breaths. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to mm-hmm. share a little bit about that resource? Yeah. I mean, I, I, again, I feel so lucky because I get to write books for grownups. I write books for therapists and professionals. And, and in the last few years, started writing books for kids. And I always wanted to be a writer when I grew up. Um, and now I do, I get to do that and it doesn't pay the bills. Just if anyone's, you know, trying to be a writer, just so you know, <laughs> but, um, it's so much fun. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, so <clears throat> with, with kids, alpha breaths came out of a conversation I had with, um, Daniel Retschoffen, who's a wonderful mindfulness educator. Um, and I have kind of run in similar circles for a while. And, um, it's basically just, it's a very silly book i don't even know how technically mindful it is but it's about breathing um and it's just an alphabet book so it starts with like a is for the alligator breath and b is for the butterfly breath and c is the hot chocolate breath and it's just it's fun the illustrations came out really well it's just very silly and and kids really get into it because then um parents and kids can make up their own breaths or do one a day or do a couple before bedtime or teachers are using it in classrooms. And so it, it was just so much fun to put together. And I, I just found out about a week ago that um, they're going to they're gonna sign a sequel for it. So we're going to have more alpha breaths coming in 2021. Um, and, uh, and then last year, I also got to write a book with my wife um, called The Breathing Book. That's just um, for little kids also a picture book. And it's just kind of silly um, using the book, actually, it's, it's more kind of Thich Nhat Hanh inspired. It's really using the book as the object of mindfulness. So it's like, how does the book feel in your hands? Like, what's its weight? What's its shape? How does it smell? Like, can you imagine the tree that it came from? Um, what's the sound of turning page five compared to turning page 12? Like, kind mm-hmm. of turn the page with your breath by like blowing on the page so it's like (laughs) just kind of fun stuff like that and that actually has a um it's not an exact sequel but there's a little bit of a series that that's that that's going to be that i also just found out so you're hitting me on a good day where i got this good good news about some more books coming too in addition to these ones that i've done yay yay for good news in the world yeah the breathing book sounds really great it reminds me of this we have some cool book about this dots and you like oh yeah press here yeah, press yeah. here it is awesome. totally. I mean, it's sort of like a like a mindfulness ripoff of press here, like exposure. <laughs> like if like because my wife and I are reading press here. I'm like, could you do like a mindfulness version of this? And then like that's how the totally how the idea got started. Yeah, absolutely. Oh yeah, yeah. All right. Well, look, if your kids like. <laughs> If, if you don't have press here, you have to get press here. It's so fun. But, and the breathing book is so good. Uh, I love this idea. Like I want to, I want to blow the pages. <laughs> Sounds really fun. Um, well, Chris, it's been awesome to talk to you. Um, is there anything that we didn't talk about that you think is important to talk about uh, or mention or any last words that you have for the, the listener? Oh my gosh, just this, this has been so much fun. Thank you. And it's also so great to meet you. I've seen your name over the years. Um, and then to you know actually have this conversation has been, yeah, just such a treat for me. So thank you. And if any of your listeners are interested, you know, just feel free to check out my website or, you know, I also... Um, you know, I'm on social media where I actually do a daily challenge on, on Instagram of like one little mindfulness prompt every day with, with different themes for each month. So if people want to check that out, they're welcome to. 
Oh, cool. What's your Instagram handle? Oh, it's at Dr. Chris Willard, like Dr. Chris Willard. Yeah. No, no dot. No dot. Yeah. Okay. We got to know these details. We gotta <laughs> right know now it's important. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Chris. I I I love your work, and uh, it's been a real pleasure to. <laughs> Likewise, it's an honor. Thank you. Chris is pretty awesome, right? I love what he has to say about resili- resilience. Uh, yes. And that always comes down to us, right? Like we, our emotions are contagious and our practice of mindfulness is so, so important so that we can be there. Our kids are going to have hard times. We're going to have hard times, but so we need to develop those tools to weather these hard times. It's so, so vital. It's just an important life skill. Um, that's why that's, one of the pillars of all the work I do with mindful parenting. I recently put together the mindful parenting framework in a visual. I'm going to share it with you um, at some point, but it's, you know, picture these sort of three overlapping circles, kind of Venn diagram style. And I really see this as like that mindfulness piece is is so, so important. It's one of those circles. And then self-compassion is the other one that's overlapping. Those two pieces are so, so important. And then, wow, when you overlap skillful communication with those three, that is when some amazing magic happens. And that's what all the work I do around mindful parenting and my coaching groups has to do with. And uh, just a quick reminder you can join the free training that's going to start in early September. It's coming around sooner than you know. So go to mindfulparentingcourse.com slash free training to be a part of it. That's mindfulparentingcourse.com slash free training. And it's such a great idea to like get together a group of friends and do it together. You guys hold each other accountable. You can talk about it. It's really um, makes it so you get so much more out of it. You're then thus your family gets so much more out of it and it, it really magnifies the impact. So I invite you to do that. Some to mindfulparentingcourse.com slash free training. And I can't wait to talk to you and see you there. And thank you so much for listening. I hope this has been helpful for you. It's so helpful for me. I feel so, so blessed and lucky to be able to not only have this relationship with you, my listener, I love like hearing all the feedback, but just like it's so cool to be able to talk to all these amazing people and bring them to you. I feel really blessed and lucky to be able to do this work and I hope it's benefiting you. I hope it's benefiting your family and um, I'm wishing you lots of peace this week and I will be back at you next week. We have some amazing podcasts coming up. Next week, we're going to be talking about how to heal generational trauma. Really, really powerful stuff. I've been talking about that conversation with so many of my friends. Um, So I'm so excited to share it with you. Um, Yeah, that's coming up next week. And in the meantime, I hope you can take some of these pieces with you from today, from listening. Hope you can take, you know, restart that mindfulness practice that you may have forgotten or to just maybe try it anew. You know, it's, it's so many benefits and, and like zero 
zero uh, side effects, right? Negative side effects. It's pretty awesome. So don't be afraid. We can do it. We can sit quietly by ourselves and, and learn to get to know ourselves. And the benefits are so awesome. All right. Wishing you that this week. I'll be practicing with you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate your presence. Have a great week, my friend. Namaste.